As our uh, children have entered into their adult years, one of the things Susie and I have talked about is our desire to continue to build relationships with them and their spouses. And so we have a bit of a family tradition whereby on Saturday nights, unless we're at a wedding or something, the house is open. Susie spends the day often cooking a great meal and the kids are welcome to come over with their spouses. And most of the time, the majority of them are there. And this is an opportunity for us to have a meal together and to laugh and joke and maybe play a game afterwards. And right now, one of our highlights is passing the grandbaby around. That's, that's fun. So we like to do that. And we do that because we value family. And then we have extended family gatherings, generally around Christmas time, as many of you I'm sure enjoy. We invest in our family. We enjoy these family reunions because we know that families are special. But at the same time, in every family, there can be painful moments. So you've had, I'm sure, had the experience of going to an extended family gathering and, you know, the weird uncle shows up or the wayward cousin. And, you know, you treat them well, but they're not exactly pouring into the reunion. They're maybe detracting from it. But nevertheless, we still value family. Family has a lot of pluses, maybe has a few minuses along the way but we know that we should honor and respect those that God has entrusted to us as our blood relatives. Well, the church of Jesus Christ is also a family. And in the church of Jesus Christ, there's gonna be lots of blessings and there's gonna be some hard times. But we commit ourselves to the concept of biblical community because that's what God has called us to. And we come together weekly and during the week and we try to pour into each other's lives and shape each other so that we can become a little bit more like Jesus Christ. And if we're backsliding or slipping off the road, we're pulled back to center. We do this because the church is an eternal family. We are a new covenant community. Check this out. We are the bride of Christ. And we are the hope of the world. The way we act, the message that we preach influences the world around us. So we hold high the church of Jesus Christ. We do not believe that the church of Jesus Christ is, is yet perfected. There's flaws and errors in every church. But we hold high the concept of the church because it's God's idea. It's really important then for us to work on being a, a faithful, healthy church. And the book of Acts has been the subject of our study for a few weeks now in our church, also known as the Acts of the Apostles. And the great thing about the book of Acts is that it helps us to understand how the church was birthed. It helps us to understand and look at various incidents and events in the life of the early church that illustrated some of the highs and lows that they experienced. And it also introduces us to her commitments, the things that make or break a healthy church. And we also see from time to time in the book of Acts, some of her adversaries, some of her enemies. So we need to be aware that the world is hostile to the church and we need to know what our adversaries are and respond appropriately to that. We're going to look at verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter two. We've studied chapter one. 
We've made it almost all the way through Acts chapter two. And now we're in the last six verses of Acts chapter two. And this is where we're gonna see what a true spiritual family gathering looks like. What does the church do when it gathers? What should be our corporate collective commitments as a Christian church? Now, structurally, the book of Acts, just like every book in the Bible, has a structure to it, has a flow to it. They address certain themes. And Acts presents us with clusters of events and incidents. And what happens is these clusters of events and incidents that may span several chapters often have a summary statement at the beginning or the end of those clusters to introduce us to it or to summarize what we just read. So the six verses we're going to study are a summary of life in the early church and then chapter three, chapter four, and halfway through chapter five give us a series of events and incidents, a panel of events and incidents that illustrate these commitments being played out, how they work themselves out in culture, in society. So let's look at these and I'll read for you verses 42 through 47. And it begins as follows. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This perhaps is one of the more well-known passage selections in the book of Acts because it is beautiful. It presents us with this picturesque, this almost scenic, quaint view of life in the early church. And it's something we would want in our church. Is that not true? Something we would strive for. There's nothing negative about this. This is all positive. It's all a blessing. It's sort of a paradigm. It's a model. It's a type of where we need to be headed and how we need to be shaping our local church here in Windsor, Ontario. It's a beautiful picture of life in the early church. Now, you don't want to go too far with this and say, oh, I wish, I wish everything in our church was like it was in the early church because the early church also had its warts and diseases and challenges and problems. We'll see some of those. It wasn't perfect. But here we do have a more or less perfect principled paradigm for how churches should, should function. And the word I want to draw your eye back to in the text, so you can just see it and meditate it upon, upon it a little bit more, is the third word of the first verse we read, the word devoted. Think about that word for a moment. Devoted is a deep and profound and meaningful word. When we read our Bibles, we might say, oh, we're studying the Bible, we're reading the Bible, but then we take it to the next level. We say, we're doing our devotions meaning that we're not just eyes to the paper. 
We're not just absorbing information. We're communing with God. We're seeking to enrich our spiritual lives. There's a, that's what we call a devotional reading of scripture. We might use the language in relationship to our spouses. Say, you know, that person's a devoted husband. That person is a devoted wife, meaning they love their spouse. They're committed to their relationship. They're steadfast in their relationship. A person may receive an award at the end of 30, 40, 50 years of service to their company. And the plaque might read, this was a devoted employee of such and such a corporation. And they're applauded because they worked hard. They, they poured into the company. They benefited the company's objectives. And this is the word that's used to describe the commitments of these early Christians. The word means to be steadfast, to be mentally faithful to an objective, to be all in, to be committed to the things of God. What's the opposite? A stop and start Christian who lives their lives like a quarter mile race. They race, and then you don't see them till the next race. They race again, they don't see them till the next race. The weekend warrior, the person who is one toe in and then one toe out, the person that dabbles in Christianity. Brothers and sisters, it's not hard to get people in church. It's not difficult at all. I've never found it difficult to get people in church. And there's many people in the church, even across Canada, that are more or less committed to their faith. They love Jesus. They affirm the substance of the gospel. They appreciate a good sermon now and again. They sing the hymns of the faith. They listen to worship music. They give some money to the poor. They fellowship with local believers. But it's not really their passion. It's, it's part of their lifestyle, perhaps, but it's not, it's not really their passion. But what we see here that made the early church so successful in those early years is their mental spiritual, heartfelt faithfulness and steadfastness to the things of God. We could call these holy habits. Everybody has habits. You have bad habits or you have good habits. Maybe one of your bad habits is you never get any place on time. You're always late. You have a habit of being late. Maybe one of your bad habits is you, you chew your fingers, fingernails down when you're nervous. Maybe one of your bad habits is you eat too much junk food or you, you spend too much time in your cell phone. There's many bad habits we can develop. We're all creatures of habits. The question is simply a matter of what kind of habits are we going to develop? Are we going to develop bad habits or good habits? We all have the same number of hours in the day. Why is it that some people are so successful, so proactive? They seem to accomplish a lot. Well, it's how they use their time. And that's true of the Christian life. Some people just pull out of the gates and they're gone like a race car. And they're just committed. They're steadfast. They're mentally efficient. They're faithful. And other people seem to spin their wheels a lot and just stay at the gates. See, it's one thing to have a general commitment to Christ 
But what we need to consider is, are we devoted to the things of God? To use the, the language of that old DC talk song, are we Jesus freaks? Can you believe that song's almost 30 years old now? Are you absolutely committed and devoted to the things of God? Sadly, many Christians fail to develop holy habits. And there's generally two reasons for that. They both start with an L. The one would be laziness. Just lazy. I just sort of drift through life. I have no schedule, no agenda, no plan. I just love sort of growing fat, growing old, and doing nothing. I enjoy that feeling of accomplishing zero. Just lazy. The other is concern about becoming legalistic. If I could tell you how many sermons I heard growing up on legalism, oh, endless sermons on legalism. Because in many respects, when I was a kid, that's the issue of the day. That's the issue that the church needed to, to address. I don't think it's an issue anymore. I think the pendulum swung the other direction into antinomianism. That there's no law. Just do whatever you want. It's like, God forbid, if you actually read your Bible every single day or the preacher says, hey, you should read your Bible every single, that's legalism. God forbid if the church is called to gather every single week, that's, that's legalism. I want my freedom. I want my liberty. God forbid if you actually have set times of prayer. I don't, I don't want to have set times of prayer. That sounds Catholic. I don't want set times of prayer. I mean, God forbid if we become like Daniel who actually had set times of prayer. I want to just be led by the Spirit. Whenever I feel like it, I'll pray. And when I don't feel like it, I won't. So I never pray. There's this terror in the church today of rules and regulations. God forbid if we have holy habits, things we're actually committed to every single day. Well, folks, if you're not governed by holy habits, you're going to be governed by bad habits. And your flesh isn't going to help. It's going to encourage you to be lazy. You're going to be governed by your emotional desires and our mutual desperate desire to be comfortable, to be comfortable, to be entertained. I mean, who wants to be reading the black and white pages of the Bible when there's a new Netflix series that just came out? Who wants to be laboring in prayer when I can be watching another game on television? And so instead of being governed by the principles of God's word, we become emotionalistic and even, as I mentioned, antinomian. But wise Christians develop holy habits because they understand that while the habits in and of themselves don't necessarily make you spiritual, without those holy habits, you haven't created the atmosphere within which God does his transformative work. Kid you not, God transforms us through prayer. God transforms us through the gathering of God's people. God transforms us through the reading and study of his word. God transforms us through generosity. God transforms us through a commitment to sacrifice. So here are some of the things that the early church devoted themselves to, that we would be wise to devote ourselves to. Number one, they devoted themselves to Bible study. You should be devoting yourself 
to Bible study. You say, yeah, but pastor, they didn't have a Bible yet. The Bible wasn't canonized for about 300 years. Well, that's true. The Bible, the Biblos means book. The B-I-B-L-E, as we know, was not canonized for a couple hundred years. But the Bible of their day was composed of the Old Covenant scriptures and Genesis, which is pre-Old Covenant, obviously. And some of the gospels were starting to be put forward. The epistles were starting to be written. But what they had at their disposal, which is unique at this point in history, is the apostles who would write scripture, but who were the living gospel to them teaching them, directly commissioned and accredited by Christ, the word of God. So when you read that passage with me, you'll notice that it says they committed themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church then would evaluate all truth claims against the word of the verified apostles of Christ. This is why you have to guard the office of apostle, not just handed out to anyone who wants to bear that title. Because by bearing the title, in a sense, you could be claiming to be a revelator. Well, here we have the apostles of Christ who had seen the risen Christ and been accredited by God himself. Now, by the way, lest you diminish the efforts of the apostles, it's notable that when the Bible was canonized, When it was affirmed, the process of canonization is not about selection. It's not a process of selecting what books wind up in the Bible and selecting what books to omit. It's a process of affirming the books that were actually the word of God. And there's obviously qualifications for it to measure up to that standard. But when this process of canonization took place, it's noteworthy that only the books of the apostles or their accredited associates were included in the canon of scripture. And then the canon was slammed shut. We're not adding books in the second century, the third century, the fourth century. It's like the apostles are gone. The canon slammed shut. So the church of Jesus Christ, a new covenant community has always held a high regard for the teaching of the first century apostles. Last week, we discussed prophecy. And as I mentioned to you, prophecy is in part, and largely, even if you read the Old Covenant prophets, policing and reminding people about what God has always already said. But even when it comes to revelating on God's behalf for the future, no matter what your view of prophecy is in the moment, let me tell you this. The church must agree across our denominational lines across our traditions, the church must agree that no word of man ever trumps the canonized word of God. The buck stops here. So we need to make sure that our our truth claims are always anchored in the word of God. And this brings stability, it brings clarity, and it brings blessing to the world because now we don't meddle with muddle and befuddle the word of God. So let's commit ourselves to the regular habitual study of God's word. So I would just encourage you as Christians, if you're not already doing this, to set aside 
time in your day, not leftover time. Leftover time is not what God's looking for. First fruits time, prime time, premier time, good time to study God's word, to pour into God's word. I know life is busy. Some of you have 15 kids. Some of you work 70, 80 hours a week. You have commitments. But folks, we all, we all make choices about where we're gonna invest our time and energy. And some of you may have a, an hour or two hours a day to pour over God's word. And some of you might only have 10 minutes, five minutes, but make a commitment to reading God's word. Devote yourself to it. Make it a holy habit. Secondly, devote yourself to gathering for fellowship. Notice it says the fellowship. So this is a reference to the fellowship of God's people, Christian fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it's, it goes beyond mere friendship. You can have fellowship outside of the church. You can have fellowship with your neighbor of a sort, but this is the fellowship. This is deluxe fellowship. This is the kind of fellowship that is uniquely enjoyed by God's people. Fellowship is essentially about sharing in a relationship, but there's an added dimension to that for Christians. Our relationships are centered on and grounded on and founded on Jesus Christ. So we have a different kind of fellowship. So perhaps many of you have been part of um, hobby groups. You practice a particular hobby or you're part of a an athletic association or a trade guild or a, a vocational association. And you come together, let's say you're a physician and you, you come together with a bunch of other physicians and you talk medicine. You're an electrician and you, you're part of a, a trade guild and you come together and you, you talk electricity. You're, you're a hockey player and, and you're part of a hockey association or a hockey club and you come and you, you talk and you play the sport of hockey. Or you're a regular at the dojo, you practice a particular kind of martial art. What is it that brings you into those different spheres of life? A horizontal bond. We like the same thing. We do the same thing. We have a common interest. It's a human connection. There's a sort of fellowship there. Think about the church. What is it that draws us together? It's a vertical bond. It's the fact that each one of us that knows Jesus Christ have been saved by the precious blood of the eternal lamb. And our, our fellowship then is not because we have the same job or like the same things. Our fellowship is centered on and anchored on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that takes fellowship to a whole new level. This is the kind of fellowship that God enjoyed or that the church enjoyed with God. And this is what makes fellowship in the Christian church profound and deep and wide and meaningful and enduring and beautiful. This is, by the way, we need to be reminded of this. This, by the way, is why the apostle Paul had to remind the early church about fellowship and warn them about who they fellowship with. Here's what he said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light 
with darkness. Think about this in terms of your relationships. We're to be friendly to lost people. We're to be collegial to lost people. We're to pursue lost people for the sake of introducing them to the gospel. But if if we understand that our identity is in Christ, why would your BFF be a lost person? Because the only fellowship you have is horizontal. Oh, we're the same age, we like the same sports, we drink the same beer, we wear the same clothes, we get our nails done at the same salon. These horizontal connections. But where's Jesus in all of that? Where's Jesus in all of that? Now, again, we want to be friendly to the lost, but one of the marks of a maturing Christian, as they mature, and you start to meet their BFFs, and you meet their spouse, they're Christians. Otherwise, what fellowship hath light with darkness? This is a very horizontal, temporary kind of a relationship. So whether it's in business or in marriage or in deep, intimate friendships, Christians fellowship uniquely with other Christians. Brothers and sisters, let me step on some toes. If you want to make an incredibly dumb choice in life, if you want to make one of the stupidest, most foolish decisions that any human being can make, and you're a Christian, date and marry a non-Christian. It's a recipe for disaster. You may be physically attracted, emotionally attracted, socially compatible, but what fellowship, where's the depth of the relationship? What fellowship has light with darkness? Where's the fellowship? Where's the true connection? See, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter five that a Christian marriage is actually a display of the gospel whereby the husband role plays Christ and the wife role plays the church. What kind of relationship is it if you have a church but no Christ or Christ but no church? There's no relationship there. So this is why if you came to Christ later on and maybe you've come to Christ and your spouse haven't, hasn't, okay, that's, that's a 1 Corinthians 7 scenario whereby you stick in that relationship and you live out your faith and you do your best and you seek to sanctify your spouse through that relationship, but you don't actively pursue best friends, business relationships, marriage with lost people. It's a violation of every principle of who we are as Christians. Therefore, if you look at a person's life and all their best friends are lost people, they don't truly understand what friendship and fellowship actually is. Again, doesn't mean we shouldn't be friendly with, collegial with, and kind to, and evangelistic with. It's not like I became a Christian. I don't talk to lost people anymore. It's not that. But you actively pursue friendships with people that know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basis of, a, of true fellowship. And the church understood that. Third, you devote yourself to the breaking of bread. Now, most will know that this language, breaking of bread, can refer to the Eucharistic meal, communion, the Lord's Supper. The the writer Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uses 
this language breaking of bread in reference to the Eucharistic meal in Luke twenty two nineteen. You can reference that in your own. He also uses the exact same language, the breaking of bread, to refer to the sharing of a meal together in Luke 24, verse 30. So the language breaking of bread can legitimately refer to the sharing of a meal or it can refer to the Eucharistic meal. The Eucharist, by the way, it's a Greek word. Eucharisto means to give thanks for. It's a Christian word. The Lord's Supper, communion, that Eucharistic meal. So when we read Acts 2, you'll notice that twice the language breaking of bread pops up in the text. And there, there has been some debate among Christians as to what is in mind here. Is he referring to a shared meal that the Christians enjoyed with one another, perhaps even on a daily basis? Or is this a reference to the Eucharistic meal, the Lord's Supper, perhaps also shared on a daily basis? If you look at verse 46, so which is it? Is it the Eucharistic meal or is it a common meal that they were enjoying together, perhaps even on a daily basis? Well, on on one hand, it, it might seem out of place if it was a mere meal. After all, we're talking about the devotional life of the church. They're praying, they're teaching from the apostles' doctrine. So it might seem out of place just to throw in a, oh, they're also having a meal together, burgers and fries so to speak. But on the other hand, it might seem out of place that they would get together every day and celebrate the Lord's Supper since the Lord's Supper is the new covenant Passover and the the Passover was celebrated once a year. And even in, in the modern church, we have churches that celebrate it annually or biannually or monthly, every three weeks or every two weeks, or some would insist that it's to be celebrated every week. Okay, fine. But it would appear here it was celebrated daily if it's a reference to the Eucharistic meal. So I don't know of any denomination that gathers daily to celebrate the Eucharistic meal. Well, perhaps the best explanation to this question is both. So there's two references here. And if you look carefully at the first reference to the breaking of bread, it is linked to prayer and teaching. And so likely the way it's being used by Luke is in reference to what we would call the Lord's Supper. They would meet together regularly and they would study scripture, as we would call it. They would pray together and they would celebrate the Eucharistic meal. But then if you look at the second reference, it's linked very much to a cluster of ideas revolving around selling and providing and and eating food together. So chances are this is a reference to the common meal, a meal that Christians would enjoy with one another. Now here's where I think this gets interesting. In the modern church, we tend to have this stark division between the Eucharistic meal whereby we come together to remember and commemorate the Lord Jesus and eating dinner together. There's a stark contrast between the two. I'm not sure that there was as stark of a contrast in the early church because while the Eucharistic meal is a opportunity to in a special way celebrate the risen Lord, 
his death, burial, and resurrection, keep in mind that the original Lord's Supper was a meal, an extended meal. They were getting together because they needed calories. And they were also celebrating and commemorating the Passover. So it was a both and. They were being fed. It wasn't a little cup. It was a, a whole meal. But at the same time, they were being taught about this new meaning that was being poured into this ancient celebration, filled up by the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even today, when Christians come together to share a simple meal, what do we do at the beginning of our meals? We pray. We remember God's provision in our lives. We may even pray, Lord, pray, Lord, bless this food to my body. Or if it's junk food, help it to pass right through, right? <laughs> and then we may add to our prayer a reference to the cross of Christ or our salvation. So even in our, our common meals, there is a Eucharistic overtone. We give thanks for our food. And it's, our thankfulness is centered ultimately upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that respect, if I could say this, every meal that we eat should be a Eucharistic meal on some level. And that it's centered on and interpreted in light of the provisionary work of God in our lives for our daily bread or our eternal salvation. So we're constantly looking for opportunities to commemorate the work of Christ. And I think the early church was maybe a little bit, the lines were a little more blurred for them. They would meet together for a meal. They would commemorate the Lord's Supper. And then maybe there were times in their worship where it was a little more pointed, a little more particular. There was a bit more of an emphasis on the eternal lamb who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. So let us also devote ourselves to the breaking of bread and to commemorating Every day, whether it's around the dinner table or around the Lord's Supper, the work of Christ on our behalf. Fourth, we devote ourselves to prayer. As uh, witnessed throughout Acts, early Christians, surprise, surprise, prayed. Medieval Christians prayed. Reformation era Christians, guess what they did? They prayed. Modern Christians, guess what we do? We pray. Prayer is an act of contrition. It's an act of submission. It's an act of confession. It's an act of supplication. It's an act of adoration. We pray because we need God and we are insufficient in and of ourselves. It is an act of worship. Paul taught the Ephesians in the sixth chapter, verses 18 through 20, that it's part of their spiritual warfare praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what do we see there? Prayer is continual. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Now, a person could be hyper-literal, I suppose, and say, well, what that means is you're sinning right now, pastor, because you're not praying, you're preaching. 
The Bible says pray without ceasing. You should always be praying. Surely that would be an absurd interpretation of scripture. I mean, you got to take time to eat. You have to take time to do other things. But prayer without ceasing is to have a continual attitude of prayerfulness, to pray in a regular way, to have the holy habit of prayer in your life. If you say, I'm a runner, that means you're, you run, right? It doesn't mean you run 24-7. It just means you run a lot. To be a prayer doesn't mean you're praying literally 24-7, but you pray a lot. You pray continually. Your prayer is spirit-led. By the way, there's nothing wrong with extemporaneous prayers. But the evangelical church is pretty good at that. Maybe the message we need to be reminded of is there's nothing wrong with recited prayers either. There's nothing wrong with written prayers. There's nothing wrong with verbalized prayers or mentalized prayers. We needn't get too hung up on the form. But regardless of how we pray, we should be led by the Spirit of God because it's the Spirit of God that makes that connection between the prayer and the one being prayed to. By the way, don't bother praying if you haven't submitted yourself to Jesus Christ because your prayers hit the ceiling and drop right back down to the floor. God does not hear the prayers of lost people. This is why parents, I'll step on a few more toes, you need to be very careful when you're dealing with a child who's not yet a Christian to say, I want you to pray for, for the meal. We didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't have my children pray for the meal before they were saved, as I recall, because I don't want them to think that prayer is just something we do. We would encourage them to repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, prayer is just a collection of words. They can learn to pray afterwards. But the first prayer should be a prayer of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a unique gift for the people of God. By the way, have you noticed in our culture, in the old days, when there was a national crisis or a problem, your leaders would say, my thoughts and prayers are going out to you. They don't do that anymore too much in Canada. It's just, I'm sending, I saw a guy this week, I'm sending you good vibes and thoughts. Yeah, that's efficacious. Thanks for the vibes. Thanks for the thoughts. How do you send thoughts and vibes? Does nothing. It's all garbage talk. It's all mumbo jumbo. But we have a gift. We can actually pray into crises. Pray against war. Pray against disease. Pray against plagues. Pray for economic hardships. And the Lord will answer the prayers of his people as he sees fit. And then finally, Paul here prays for boldness that he may proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He sees himself as an ambassador, a steward, a spokesman for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fifth and finally, we devote ourselves to generosity. I'll read verses 44 and 45 since it's been a few minutes since you've heard it. And all who believe were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What is one of the fundamental marks of a person that's been gifted eternal life? 
generosity. They just can't help it. You see, by nature, we know we're physical beings, and physical beings want physical comfort. So we, we grab onto things that are physical in nature, and we want to hold them close. If I can get lots of food in my pantry, I feel protected. If I have a car and maybe a spare car, I don't have to worry about my car breaking down. I can travel. If I have a nice house, I have a place of shelter, a place to entertain, a place to retreat to. We like our creature comforts. Now, there's nothing innately wrong with the created order. There's nothing innately wrong with housing or automobiles or possessions or money. But they can easily become an idol. Kid yourself not. I got a big pension. Just feel super comfortable. Can do what I want, go where I want, lots of money in the bank. We have to be very careful when God starts pouring out the blessings. We have to be very careful that we don't take that which, is, which he has given and turn it into an idol. So the, the posture of the Christian, look at my hand, is never like this. It's not like these are mine. I'm holding on to it. I'll never let it go. You know, don't, don't touch my stuff. Don't ask about my stuff. It's all mine. It's, it's the cupped hand posture. It's, yeah, I'm going to steward it. But if you want some, you can have some. And if God wants to take it away, I'm not going to resist. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's stewardship. This is idolatry. That's stewardship. This is idolatry. And one of the ways we remind ourselves of God's provisionary nature is to form the holy habit of being generous. When you get used to giving things away, not only is it a lot of fun and enjoyable, but it just reminds you of who ultimately provides. It reminds you of who ultimately provides. Generosity then is with one's possessions is the mark of every Christian. We share with one another. We lend a hand. We can share with our time and talents. We may lend a tool. We may give clothing away. We may make a meal. We may help financially. We may donate to a particular cause. We give to those in need. The early church even made the habit of downsizing, if necessary, to meet needs. It's not a bad idea. It's easy to become a hoarder. Start stockpiling the things that you like. Every once in a while, it's like, you know what? I don't need all this stuff. I'm just going to give it away. You've heard me before rant on garage sales. I can't stand it. I can't stand it when people take stuff out of the back corner of the garage or out of the attic, stuff they haven't used or even thought about for years, and then put it on the lawn and then actually negotiate. And I want a dollar, 75 cents, two, how about a buck 50? It's like, come on, just give it away. Give it away. You don't care for it anyway until you see it on the lawn and you realize you can make money off of it. Just give it away. Take the stuff. And then part of generosity too is giving from our first fruits, not our leftovers. So back 25 years ago or so when I was a youth pastor, if you were a cool youth pastor, you always had a youth lounge in your church. And one of the things that every youth lounge had is what we call cat pee couches. So they were couches that were donated by people in the church whose cats peed on them. 
So if you got an old couch, the cat peed on it, what do you do? You give it to the church. You buy yourself a new one from Tepperman's, but you give the cat pee couch to the church, right? Because that's what you do when you're going to give, you give your garbage away. It's like if you find it a missionary is short on tea, what do you do? You don't send tea bags, you send used dried out tea bags, right? I heard of a church locally several years ago that would go to Starbucks and, and secure their used coffee grinds and brew that in the church because it's the church after all, right? The church doesn't need the best. At church, you should expect lousy coffee and cat pee couches and the youth lounge. It's not like that. It's not like let's give the garbage to Jesus and keep the rest for ourselves. We give of our first fruits to the Lord. Now, this is not, again, to be hyper-literal, a command to liquidate all your assets and live in a van down by the river. (laughs) Some of you know what I'm talking about. I think it was like this. A van down by the river. (laughs) It's not that. Google that this afternoon, by the way. (laughs) Chris Farley. (laughs) But the willingness to give generously among God's people should be unparalleled outside of the Christian church. We should be the most generous people the world has ever seen. And you know what? When you practice it, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a freeing thing. And this isn't my idea. Someone shared this with me years ago and I've shared it with you before, but I think it's a a great illustration. The Bible calls us to shovel out our money and God shovels it back and God has a bigger shovel. So as we, I don't know why the math doesn't work, but as we give, God also blesses as a general principle. So what does this look like? If we actually practice these things, if we devote ourselves to these things, not only are we blessed, but look what what happens. It says, they had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wait, you're, you're telling me that if churches are faithful, they'll actually grow? Because I was told, that if you're a small church that never grows, you are a faithful church. And if you're a growing church, we got, there's got to be compromise somewhere because after all, in 2023 Canada, it's impossible for churches to actually grow that are faithful. Really? Read the book of Acts. Now, it doesn't mean that a growing church is a faithful church. There are cults that grow that are not faithful to the things of God. But as a general principle, a faithful church should be a growing church. And imagine if it was like this, the Lord added to their number day by day, day by day by day. It was just a regular occurrence for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't like, woo, we did one baptism this decade. Day by day, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Does it mean that they had no enemies? Does it 
When it says for all the people, doesn't mean like all without exception, meaning every single person. No, that would be hyper-literal. And we know that there was a response from the Jews that was largely negative. But the Jewish public as a whole for a period of time was favorable. Yes, they'd run into some obstacles, but guess what? Part of your witness is your lifestyle. To be devoted to something is contagious. You actually believe in prayer? Seriously? I thought it was just a ritual you went through. Wait, wait, wait. You actually read the Bible every day. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I do. Wow. It's contagious. You normalize holy habits. So here's an idea. Let's not assume that the outlook is entirely bleak because when people see our lives lived well, that's part of our witness. Are our words our witness? Yes. Are our sermons our witness? Yes. But I'm not really convinced that at the end of the day, if we were to identify a deficit in the Christian church today, that it's a lack of access to teaching. There's a lot of that but I might suggest that there's a bit of a lack of a commitment to devoting ourselves to the things of God. And there's something powerful and beautiful about a life that's actually diehard committed to following the things of God. We've even heard it in our own church that when people come in, I've heard it last week. When I came to your church, I felt loved and welcomed. I think two or three people told me that. Really? So you didn't just come for the sermon? Huh? I thought you came for the sermon. Hmm. No. The thing that they mentioned was not the sermon, the music, the location, the temperature. I felt loved. So what do you mean? Our actions actually impact people's lives? Yeah, they do. So let's commit ourselves to these beautiful things, fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, the study of God's word. And the Lord will add to our numbers as he sees fit. When churches function well, numbers swell. Oh, we're not into numbers. Okay, then you're not into the gospel. Oh, but our church isn't into numbers. We're just about being faithful. Then you're not faithful. Because you know what a number is? It's a human being. A number is a human being. Why are you not into numbers? Why would you not want to see more people reach for Christ? These are human beings. So let's commit ourselves to be devoted to these things so that we might be blessed, God might be glorified, and the world might be one to the honor and glory of the eternal King. 